Now, last time we saw the incredible arrival to earth of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And we're going to continue right where we left off. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this incredible book of Revelation that has been so amazing, so moving, so mind-boggling. And we thank you, Lord, that you're the God of the future, that you're already in our future waiting for us to arrive. And we pray now that you will open our eyes tonight and help us as we close out this incredible, amazing book. Help us to glean from its truth and to be even better anchored for the days that are coming. We thank you for it in Jesus' name, who holds the whole world in his nail-scarred hands. Amen. We saw the arrival to the earth of the new Jerusalem. What an amazing thing. The city of God like a bride adorned for her husband. We consider the dimensions of that incredible city, how huge it is, and uh, the surpassing beauty of her makeup, the way that this city is constructed with all the incredible stones, the beautiful gemstones that John describes. Just incredible what heaven is going to be like. You read these things, and it just makes you want to be there. And then we also noted that the new Jerusalem is not all of heaven, but it's the long-awaited city of God. This talked about in Hebrews 11, verses 15 and 16. Let's look at it in verse 15. Now, he's talking about the Old Testament saints here. He's talking about those who died in faith, not having received the promise. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, major, minor prophets, all of them. That's the they, if they had been thinking of the country they had left. That's talking about their own hometown, their own turf. They would have had opportunity to return. For instance, Abraham would have wanted to return to Ur of the Chaldees. That's an example. But he said no. Instead, they were longing for a better country. And not just an earthly country, but what does it say? A heavenly one. So this was in Abraham's bosom. Isaac's and Jacob's and David's. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For what has he done for them? Preach to me. He has prepared a city for them. Isn't that amazing? A city. And this city is green. You don't have to worry about carbon emissions, even though I'm not worried about carbon emissions even now. And I don't believe in global warming. I do believe in a warming that is coming, and it's hellaciously hot, and I don't want to be there. But that's the only global warming I'm thinking about. All right. He has prepared a city for them. Now this time, we come to the Bible's final messages to the Omega, or the end of Scripture. Revelation 22 is the 1,189th chapter in the Bible. So now, if you, Genesis to Revelation, you're going to read it 1,189 chapters. Without these final words, the canon of Scripture might have been supposed to be yet open. But John's going to make it clear to us tonight that it's not open that nothing more is to be added after Revelations chapter 22. Not one word. Matter of fact, he's going to tell us, you better not. In the first five verses, the scene of heaven is majestic and satisfying. John beholds the crystalline stream, the water of life flowing from the very imperial throne of the eternal God. Let your sanctified imaginations kick in as we read these. They just imagine, as best you can, what 
God is prepared for us. Revelation 22, verse 1, here we go. John says, Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. You talk about a river. There's no pollution in this river. There's no dirt in this river. This is pure water, untainted, unstained, undiluted, unpolluted water, flowing straight out of God's throne. So there is a river. As Brother Howard said last week in the audio we played for you, which continues to move me, and in an inspiration of prophetic insight, David, the psalmist, saw the same river. And this is one of the great evidences to me that this Bible is the word of the living God because men who didn't know each other, who were separated by vast amounts of time, saw and wrote about the same things, and they agree, and you don't find contradiction. So here's David, way back, centuries before Christ. And then you got John, centuries, more than a millennia later, and they're saying the same thing. Here's what David said, there is a river whose streams make glad what, everybody? The city of God. What were those saints of old looking for? A city whose builder and maker was God. What has God prepared for them? A city. So David said, I see a river and the streams are going to make glad the city of God and the holy place where the Most High dwells. Now John goes on with his description. It flowed down the center of Main Street. That river flows down the center of the main street. You know, in the book of Acts, there's a street called Straight. In Revelation, there's a main street. Hallelujah. It flowed down the center of the main street. Look at that. I mean, that kind of does it justice, the best that we could find. There's a river flowing right down the center of the city of God. The river's sparkling waters flow through the midst of the broad golden avenue of glory. And once again we encounter the tree of life. Man, where's that tree been? You see it in Genesis? And Adam and Eve, when they fell, it says that the cherubim came and drove them out of Eden with the sword of God and wouldn't let them back in because you know why they wanted back in? They wanted to partake of the tree of life. And they wanted to undo what they had done. But if they had gotten back into Eden and partaken of that tree, they would have lived forever in sin and been unredeemable. So God couldn't let them back in to eat of that tree. But that tree was there in the Garden of Eden. And now all of a sudden, from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, here it is again, the tree of life. And Revelation 22, verse 2 says, On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit. Man, that's the only tree I know of that can bear 12 different kinds of fruit from the same trunk. Bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop every month. The leaves were used, look at this, for medicine to heal the nations. Now that's a tree I wish I had in my backyard. Amen? You get cut, you go grab one of those leaves, it's over with. You're healed. You get a headache, forget the extra strength, etc. Just go grab a leaf and rub your forehead. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. That's a major tree. 
the tree of life. It's a heavenly kind of tree. It's depicted as growing, blossoming, and bearing fruit for the healing or the health of the nations. The leaves from the tree are medicinal. They carry the power to heal. Reminds me of Jesus. Amen? Next, John assures us that all curses will be gone. Verse 3, he says, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. No curse on the ground. No curse on you. No curse on me. No curse on the universe. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. Can you say with me, no more curse? Now, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? God said the ground's going to be cursed. And he said to the woman, you're going to bear children in pain. How many of you ladies can say, that's a curse? Come on, ladies. That won't be there anymore. No more curse for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face. And his name will be written on their foreheads. Think about this. What is it about the forehead? I think it depicts the thoughts. And here's in the Antichrist brief reign, he wants to get a mark on your forehead. And if you get that mark on your forehead, you are a damned individual. No getting out. No second chance. The Bible's very clear. Don't ever take that mark. But look how God wants to mark your forehead as well. So the devil's just a counterfeiter. He wants to do what God is going to do. He's going to mark your forehead with his name. Glory to God. That's a tattoo I want. Heaven will be unlike anything we can imagine. We will live in an imperishable, resurrected body where no sin or disease can touch us. I personally believe we'll have the kind of body Jesus had. His was a glorified body. What was he able to do? He was able to eat, but then he could walk through a door without opening it. I believe in heaven you will think of where you want to be, and you will go there. You're not going to be flying around with angels' wings and playing a harp and kicking back on a cloud. Uh-uh. You're going to have a resurrected body. What was Jesus' body like? He could cook fish for Simon Peter and the boys. He could eat a fish dinner with them. But then he could walk on water. He could walk right through a wall. He was not recognizable to Mary, who had known him for a few years. She didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener. There was something about his resurrected body that changed his countenance. A glorified body, a resurrected body, not subject to any kind of disease or sickness or pain or attack. Not any. That's what he's saying. Resurrected body, glorified body. That's what happens when the rapture of the church takes place. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trump, the dead in Christ will be raised first from the ground, and those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. When is our body changed from mortal to immortal, from natural to supernatural? At the rapture. You receive an immediate glorified body. Doc, you will come out of that chair. And you will dance again, Doc. You know, Dr. Schaefer was an oral surgeon and used to come into our service. He's been with me for years and years. He used to dance in the altar, but now he's had some physical problems. I'm going to tell you that's only temporary. Only temporary. 
And those things that bug you and afflict you and follow you around and drag you down that are physical afflictions and infirmities, gone, gone when you're raptured. And you get a glorified, resurrected body. That's the promise. Worship of the highest order will continuously fill that place. All of the redeemed of the Old and New Testament eras will be the servants of God forever. Continually seeing His face and reigning with Him. Folks, let these words sink in, soak in, become real to you. This is the hope that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob longed for and looked for. It's what Paul said. He said, man, I know you folks need for me to be here with you in the church, but I so want to be with him. He wanted this, heaven. Listen, once you're there, you'll forget all the pain of this place. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You will be like him. You'll have a glorified body just like his. And I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed, Paul said. Well, I could go on, but I've got to go on. All right. Continually seeing his face. Can you imagine that? Reigning with him. John goes on to say in verse 5, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them. And they will reign forever and ever. Can you imagine this? Think about it. There will be no need for light bulbs, no need for lamps, no street lights, no man-made illumination, nor any need for the light of the sun. The very glory of God exuding from his person shall be the light of heaven. And you say, Pastor, how can that be? Remember Moses went up there to the mountain, and he spent a long time with God. And when he came down off the mountain, the Bible says that his face glowed. His face glowed. It glowed so mightily with the glory of God, they couldn't take it looking at him. They had to put a veil over his face because he glowed with the glory of God. The glory of God glows. It is a light. The glory of God is incandescent. It glows. It's luminous. It glows. And if you get into the very presence of the living God, it's brilliant, bright. He says, you're not going to need that sun up there because my glory is going to light up heaven. The very glory of God exuding from his person shall be the light of heaven. Think about that. Now from verse 6 through the end of the chapter, John records his closing words. The last words of Christ and the last words of the revealing angel. And so here we come now to the last words in the whole Bible. The great apostle is so overwhelmed with the words of Jesus Christ and of all that he has seen and heard that he falls again in front of the angel. He's overwhelmed. He's trembling. He falls to his knees as, like he did in chapter 19, verse 10. And again, the angel tells him, hey, don't worship me. I'm just a servant of the Lord. Worship God. And verse 6 says, Then the angel said to me, Everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and absolutely true. The Lord God, who inspires his prophets, has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. And then the Lord Jesus himself tells the old apostle, 
in verses 7 through 9. He says, look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. Now I hear some skeptics, not in here necessarily, but they're out there somewhere. I know they are. They always are. Well, he said he's coming soon. It's been over 2,000 years. That's not soon. It is to God. Peter says a day to the Lord is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day to God. So when a whole millennia goes by, a day just went by for God. So from a heavenly perspective, I'm coming soon. Since he said that, it's only been two days. Amen? Well, it's been a long time for me. Well, you're human and you're frail and you're dying soon anyway. But not God. Not God. All right? He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw all these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, no, don't worship me. I'm the servant of God, just like you and your brothers, the prophets. Who he called John a prophet. As well as all who obey what is written in this book, worship only God, the one God, the true God, and only him, church. Okay? Because anything else is idolatry. And the wrath of God through the centuries has always been poured out on people because of idolatry. He said, worship only God. Not a little bit of Islam here, not a little bit of Buddhism there, not a little bit of Confucius over here, a little bit of New Age over there. Don't salt and pepper your life with ten different religions. One God. There is one God, one Messiah, one Holy Spirit, one. He says, and notice that even in the last paragraphs, three warnings are evident. Even in the last paragraph, three warnings. Here's the first warning. The contrast between the unjust and the righteous is drawn again. Let me tell you something, folks. In our day, we are pressured to put everybody in the same category. There's nothing really wrong, nothing really right. It's a pale shade of gray. There's no right and wrong, no clear bad and good. And we're being told now that bad is good and good is bad. Light is dark and dark is light. We are told to be pluralists, meaning it's all a big melting pot. Everybody, you know, you can have whatever religion you want. It's only your intentions that matter, and God sees your heart, and it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. And we got this big melting pot of faith, and uh, we're told that there's no such thing really as immorality and all of that. But, you know, God doesn't see it that way. God's very clear. There's no hint in the last chapter of Revelations of a second chance. Verses 10 through 11, look what he says. He instructed me, don't seal up these words. In other words, don't keep them hidden. Don't put them away, John, when this is over with. For the time is near. He said, put it in a book. And let the one who is doing harm continue to do harm. Let the one who is vile continue to be vile. But let the one who is righteous see to it that they continue to live righteously. Let the one who is holy stay that way. Why? Again, Jesus speaks to John and says, here's why, verses 12 to 14, look, I'm coming soon. I'm bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. 
He said, I'm coming again, and I'm coming as a judge. I'm going to judge the world. And I want to tell you flatly, just bluntly tonight, God's going to judge this world. It doesn't matter what it looks like, how happy they look, how much they try to candy coat and sugarcoat sin. It doesn't matter what they say about how happy they are with their lifestyle, if it's an evil, sinful lifestyle. It doesn't matter. Listen, it's the devil's job to make sin look good. It's the devil's expertise to make wrong look right. But Jesus says, don't fool yourself. I'm coming, and I'm coming soon. And I'm bringing my reward with me, and it doesn't matter who it is, they're going to meet me, and I'm going to repay them according to their deeds. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, first and the last. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted. Now, we saw last time, you wash your robe by the blood of Jesus. A white robe means you're talking about somebody who has been made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. And that's the only way I tell you before God and I tell the radio audience, listen to me, I don't care how you're living in the sense that go ahead and live the way you want to, but I'm telling you, God will bring you to account for it. And if you're not covered in the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, you will not have a white robe. I don't care if you've never gotten a ticket. I don't care if you don't cuss, smoke, or chew, or run with the boys that do. I don't care if you're a model citizen. If you're not covered in the blood of the Lamb, you're not going to have a white robe. And he says very clearly, he says, only those who wash their robes will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat from the tree of life the fruit that is on it. There is no other way. Muhammad didn't make a way for you to get there. Confucius sure didn't make a way for you to get there. Buddha was an atheist. How is he going to get you there? You're evil and wicked apart from Christ. How are you going to get you there? Pastor, why don't you get fired up? Well, you know what? I want to be real clear. I want to be very clear. I'm so tired of wishy-washy Christianity light where you get a motivational seminar instead of hearing about the Word of God. I don't want a motivational seminar. I don't need a motivational seminar. I'm very motivated. The zeal for His house has eaten me up. I've got the fire of God on my heart. I don't need a motivational seminar. What I do need is Him and more of Him and then more of Him. Only those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb are going to make it through those gates. Only those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb who have washed their robes are going to be permitted to enter through heaven's gates uh, and to eat the fruit. You'll be asked, what'd you do with Jesus? Not how good were you, what'd you do with Jesus? Now here's the second warning. In verse 15, we see again the sad reminder that outside the city there remains a place for people involved in five different kinds of sins. And when we look at these five sins, they are only a depiction of what a person lives like when they don't know Jesus. So it's not just these five that are going to get you lost. These are five examples of what characterizes the life of somebody that doesn't know God. Here they are. Verse 15. Outside the city are the dogs. And what does he mean by the dogs? The sorcerers 
Now, I told you last time that pharmakia is the Greek word from which we translate pharmacy or drugs. Pharmakia is the Greek word. And it also means sorcery. And I told you last time that when you involve yourself in drugs, illegal drugs, hallucinogenics, addictive drugs, the cocaine, the heroin, the speed, the methamphetamine, when you involve yourself in drugs, you are opening up a door to hell. If you want to meet demons, get involved in drugs. If you want to give demons the opportunity to claw your brain and ruin your body and wreck your life and destroy your future and ruin your potential and wipe out your destiny, get involved in drugs. And I told you last time, and I'll say it again tonight, when somebody offers you a drug, A, they're not your friend. Look at them and see a devil. Two, B, they're a fool, and they want you to be a fool with them. I promise you, you take that drug from that person, it hooks you, it ruins your life, the day will come, they walk out on you, you don't mean anything to them. I tell you, we've got to get stronger, church. I'm tired of church people getting hooked on drugs. Why do you need a drug? You've got the Holy Ghost in you. Why do you need a drug? I mean, I don't need a drug. What's the song say? It's the Holy Ghost and fire and it's keeping me alive. I don't need a drug. Out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. I don't need a drug. I've got rivers of living water. I don't need a drug. I'm on a continual high and I don't have to go to jail for it. I don't have to pay for it. And it doesn't alter my brain. It's natural. See, sorcerers are evil magicians and drug addicts. The sexually immoral. He says that depicts somebody's life who's not saved. Sexually immoral. And today, we're ordaining them. Beam me up, Scotty. Sometimes I feel like I'm in the Star Wars bar scene. Crazy, baby. Somebody wake me up. Stick me with a pin. I'm on the top floor of a lunatic asylum and I'm sitting there listening to them talk. That's the way I feel sometimes. Can I just tell you the truth? It's the last night of Revelations. I'm going to let it all hang out. I'm just going to tell you the way I feel about it sometimes. It's true, isn't it? Don't you sometimes wonder what in the world is going on in this world? All right. The murderers and the idol worshipers. Those are the five sins. All who love to live a lie. They love to live a lie. This is not an exhaustive list of sins, but it's an example of how those who have not been born again live. The unredeemed are recognizable by these kinds of things. Now, those who never find forgiveness, who never wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb, shall remain in a shadowy, burning lake of fire on the fringe of creation. That's what it says. That's what it says. Jesus spoke very clearly about this. He described it this way. There will be weeping there, gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Now, that's one of the aspects of hell that Jesus described once. That apparently you can see those who are on the other side. He said, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. Isn't that what he just said? When you see 
and you yourselves thrown out. Matthew 22, verse 13, Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The phrase outer darkness is another synonym for hell. It is a place of darkness. It's a place outside the experience of God's grace. Although God bestows his grace on both the just and the unjust while on earth, None of the gracious presence of God is to be found in the place of outer darkness. And that's what I think makes hell, hell. There's no presence of God. The presence of God is zero, absent, zip, zero, nada. It is non-existent. It's not there. No gentle touch from the Holy Spirit. No comfort from Him. No strengthening from Him. No encouragement from His presence. It's not there. So very many people who have attempted to call evil good and good evil to put darkness for light and light for darkness who are involved in this masquerade and this charade that we're seeing today are going to be tragically surprised on that day. They're going to see that the good that they persecuted was actually truly good. And the people that they persecuted were actually his children. And the light that they called evil was actually the light of God. The closing verses of the Bible are filled with repeated calls to Jesus Christ. Even the last chapter gives an invitation. Blessedness and bliss, says John, will be the inheritance of all who do his commandments, particularly the one found in one of John's other letters that we see in 1 John 3.23, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Do you believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ? Is your robe been washed in the blood of the lamb? Is it white with the righteousness that he purchased for you? Then the Lord Jesus again reminds us of who he is and for whom the message of the revelation was given. In verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. Look at your neighbor and say, that's you. So that's why we have been so blessed. And do you know that those of you that went through this with me, and we went through it together with the Lord, that the Bible says at the beginning of the book of Revelations, there's a blessing for you that you went through this book. There's a blessing for you. There's a blessing. Now, he says, I sent this message for the churches, he tells John. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Now, Jesus is telling John the promise to David that his kingdom would be an everlasting one. You remember that? David, your kingdom is not going to go away when you die, but your kingdom is going to be an everlasting one. And we call this the Davidic covenant. There's the Abrahamic covenant. There's the Mosaic covenant. There's the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant says to David, your throne and the righteousness of your throne is going to be eternal. David looked behind and said, who, me? I'm just a mortal guy. But God was saying to David, through your lineage is going to come the Messiah. And he's going to establish your throne forever. And that's the Davidic covenant. Listen to God's promise as he speaks to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verses 12 through 16, he says, When your days are fulfilled, David, and you sleep with your fathers, I'm going to raise up your capital S seed after you, who shall come forth from your body, 
out of your lineage, David, and I will establish his kingdom. How long, everybody? Forever. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be what? My son. Capital S. Now there you've got a messianic prophecy. Your house, David, and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. And your throne will be secure for how long? Forever. Isaiah predicted that Messiah Jesus would fulfill this promise. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We know this one from Christmas. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And at the end of that verse, it says, And of the increase of his what? Government and peace, there shall be no end. Now that's talking about the rule of Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom and beyond forever. There will be no end to it. Upon the throne of who? David. And upon his kingdom, said Isaiah, to order it, establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even for how long? Forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. David, now, here's the fulfillment. Here's little Mary, little Jewish teenager. And it says when Mary was visited by the angel of God, she was told that the son to whom she would give birth would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And look what he said to her. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You're going to conceive and you're going to give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus, Jesus, Messiah, Redeemer, Savior. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And look what the angel said to her then. The Lord God will give him what? Read it with me. The throne of his ancestor, David. And he will reign over Israel, say it, forever. His kingdom will never end. That's why, folks, you better watch it if you lay your hand against Israel, against Jerusalem, against the Jewish people, because there is something you can't see watching over that place. And his name is Messiah, Jesus Yeshua HaMashiach. His name is the Redeemer, the Savior of the world. And He won't let you lay a finger against them that you don't incur His chastening. Because He's going to rule from there forever. And so Mary said, Be it unto me according to your word. Hallelujah. Now in the final chapter of the Bible, the risen Savior and Messiah, Jesus Christ, is announcing that He is the one promised in the prophecies we just read about. Now next, a warm and loving invitation from the Holy Spirit and the bride of Christ is issued as we close. I want you all to read this with me. It's so powerful. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Hallelujah. The invitation to join in the blessing of what the Son of God has purchased with His blood is offered to whosoever will. Jesus alone can quench the deepest thirst of the human soul. And now we come to the last warning and we're going to close. Here it is. Third, if anyone thinks to add to or take away from the Word of God, you better think twice. This warning rules out all other books written that make a claim to divine inspiration. 
Now, I'm going to say that again. This warning in the end of Revelations rules out, X's out, all other books that make a claim to divine inspiration. Can I be so bold as to name a couple of them? Book of Mormon? Jehovah's Witnesses? Anybody who comes along and says, I have received a revelation, Joseph Smith, and here it is, and we're going to make this a part of the Word of God. Look what is coming. Verse 18, And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, the revelation, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that are described in this book. The consequences for trifling with the Holy Bible are severe. All the 21 plagues, think about what we went through the last few months, what we saw. The seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls are going to be experienced by the person or persons adding to or taking away from Scripture. I tell you, when I go to study this book, I'm just telling you the way it is with me. I have a great reverence for this book. I worship not this book, but I worship the God of the book. And this book is not like any other book. You can mess with any book in the world and not incur this. But you can't mess with this book. So don't add to it. Don't take away from it. And all these cults that have done it, they have a serious judgment coming from God. The chapter concludes with the last promise of Jesus Christ, the last prayer in the Bible, and the last benediction. We're going to read it together, can we? Now, I want you all to preach to me because we want to end this strong. Amen? Here we are at the end. Let's read it. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. Amen. While the Old Testament closes with the words, Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse, the New Testament ends with the grace of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Father, we just thank you right now for this incredible book. And Lord, what you've shown us in these last few months. We're humbled. We bow before you. Lord, we say amen. And we pray that you'll help us to be a fruitful vine in the house of God. To live for you, if necessary, to die for you. To be faithful and true to you, the Lord of the church and the Lord of history, the Lord of the universe. We ask you, Lord, right now to give us an incredible grace and incredible open doors to make that final invitation that we just read available to millions of people. Millions of people. Help us to take this gospel to the whole world. And we thank you for it, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus.